2: The Streams of Winter. Livestream 17. Doran
3: Martell. Hello and welcome to The Streams of Winter. I'm Yokeboy Boy and we are Radio Westeros. Thanks so much guys for tuning in to today's livestream. And today we'll be talking about a character who does not have his own POV and yet is one of the central figures of the Dornish story. It's Doran Martell everyone. He suffers quietly with gouty joints and so is confined to a wheelchair and spends much of his time cautiously cautiously contemplating Dawn's next political manoeuvre. Everything about this guy is painstaking. So is Doran a slow player or an avoidant procrastinator? Has he equipped his children with the correct political tools? And what will become of him in the winds of winter... Now that we know Arya Hota is not by your side anymore. To help me answer these questions and more, here is the other half of Radio Westeros, Lady Gwyn.
2: Hello, hello and welcome everyone to the stream. Uh, we are so excited for this because we were just talking before we went live about how much material there is about Dora and Martell. Uh, we've got a very full boat of things to discuss, and uh, joining us today, returning to the live stream, is Kyle from Blood of the Podcast. Thank you, and welcome back.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Always happy to come on to Radio Westeros. Yeah, Duran Martell is so interesting, not as maybe talked about so often, but because of that, I was surprised at how much interesting material there is in this doc. So uh, thanks for having me back, and I'm excited to talk some Dorn.
2: Yes, definitely. We all are.
3: Uh, Lady Gwyn, why don't you tell our viewers and tell our podcast listeners in descriptions (laughs) what you have in your hand?
2: Well, today we've brought to the live stream a pair of blood orange martinis, a little bit of Grey Goose vodka and Cointreau, some blood orange bitters. And there's a lovely piece of blood orange floating inside of it. Cheers, everyone.
3: Cheers. That's very strong. If I start stumbling over my words by the end, you, you, it's Lady Gwyn's fault.
1: I said I was going to get something spicy and I, I was lazy and just bought bourbon. So it works. Though. It'll work for, for our purposes here.
2: <laughs> it works. Sure thing.
3: <laughs> okay, guys, I think it's time to begin with these questions that I'm going to ask you and answer myself as well. So why don't we begin with this one? Dawn is introduced to the story fairly late on, isn't it? Although we did know some pertinent details before A Feast for Crows. What are the important background factors in recent Dornish history and also their culture that have set up Doran's position and politics as head of House Martell? Why don't you set us off, Lady Gwynne?
2: Yeah, well, the most obvious is their role in Robert's Rebellion, where they remain strong supporters of House Targaryen. And one could argue that with Elia and her children in the Red Keep with the king, they didn't really have much choice. And so Prince Lewin Martell of the King's Guard brought the Dornish army to the Trident on Rhaegar's side. But there is a certain implication that the Dornish were loyal to Rhaegar specifically, And the hope of a resolution in his favor at some point, uh, both with that tactical move and in the plot that followed. So don't forget that Elia and her children were intentionally left in the city along with Jaime Lannister by a Rhaegar who clearly expected to win his battle and return to deal with the situation of his father. So the overt hostage situation where Elia wasn't allowed to seek the safety of Dragonstone really only came about after Rhaegar had lost and Ares became convinced that the Dornish had betrayed him at the Trident. So it's my opinion that Dorne was all in with Rhaegar on behalf of Ilya's children, and that they remain so. Their ire is and always has been focused on House Lannister rather than House Targaryen. And that's something that has its own history, going back to the antagonism between Tywin and Doran's mother, which is a very long story, best left for another day. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I I think those are great points, especially with how Dorne is set up within uh, recent history. So I kind of went back and I was reading fire and blood recently. So that's why I was thinking about this, but to look back a little further, it became pretty apparent to me that George has put a lot of work into Dorne, especially if you read the conquest, George sets up Dorne as one of the primary defensive positions in the entire series. Despite having three fully grown dragons, Aegon rainies and Visenya fail many times to bring Dorne to its knees. All of the other regions that were involved in the conquest, which is all of them, uh, had either larger military hosts or better structural advantages. Think the Eerie Storm's End, things like that. But none of that mattered. They were conquered almost immediately. Not Dorne. Historically, this has to make Prince any prince or princess of Dorne. Feel so invulnerable to attack that the question becomes, why would we ever go on the offense when we've always been able to play effective defense? If we can defend against dragons, surely armies don't really mean a whole lot to us. I, I think this isn't discussed enough when we look at Doran in the defensive position of Dorne. Great points, guys.
3: And I want to say something about the current culture of Dorne. The Dornish are painted as fiery, passionate and impatient, really, and these factors are ingrained in their culture. Now think about Doran with his patience and his tepid nature. It's almost like George has set up Doran to be in the the kind of anti dawn in a way, someone who is increasingly in contrast with his surroundings and with his people. Perhaps when Oberyn was by his side, they had a sort of yin-yang thing going on. Doran could get away with his game of patience while Oberyn stood by his side as a sort of man of the people. Someone who is also mobile and able to do a lot of the things that Doran was not able to do. So without Oberyn, Doran seems like a man growing increasingly isolated, and with his disabilities and his frailness, he is the embodiment of the Dornish peace. He's extremely fragile. All of this sets up Doran to be an extremely vulnerable character when we consider the complex game he's playing to fulfil his heart's desire, I think. And so next I want to ask Doran is perceived by readers to be this patient player in the Game of Thrones and a true thinker. What methods can we say George uses to characterise Duran in this way. I'll set off. So from from the offset, George lets us know that Duran is playing a slow game. In Ario's first chapter, it begins with a blood orange falling, the symbolism of fruit falling and smashing and bleeding because it's past its ripeness. Perhaps Duran's greatest fear regarding his own plans and this bloody juice splattering on the marble is of course evocative of war and after watching the fruit burst onto this marble Doran doesn't speak for hours he's confined to his chair and so we just know that this guy is thinking very deeply his fascination with the water gardens is brought up early as well endlessly watching children representing his fear of losing a war he cannot win and thus his people suffering as a result. Doran's story is full of moments of patience and thoughtfulness like these and as I said before this is underlined by the contrast to the Dornish in general. Soon we meet Obara, hasty and angry, which only serves to put Doran in an even more slow and patient light. The fragility of his gout ridden body also instills in us the sense that this character, this is a character who needs to fully utilize his mind and be a true thinker in order to play the game that way. Much, I think, like Bran's disability opens up his potential as a green seer. Kyle?
1: Yeah, I think um it's fascinating the way way you bring that up so I kind of wanted to jump into it a little bit more and, and dissect what you said there with regards to kind of what George is trying to accomplish I I think with Dorn as as the writer. The fruit smashing and bleeding against the ground represents that the hour is ripe like you said. Perhaps a uh, past right, <laughs> ripe for Duran, but it's it's juxtaposed with Duran likely contemplating the safety of these innocent children in front of him at the water gates. If If we borrow from the show, at the Water Gardens, I should say, uh, if we borrow a scene-only show, it reminds me of this time when Rob recants where his father told him, Being a lord is like being a father, except you have thousands of children, and you worry about all of them. He told me he woke with fear in the morning and went to bed with fear in the night. That's this. Duran has been so patient in plotting Dorn's revenge because he fears for his people. But ah... Here I think we get to finally the crux of the Dornish plot. At what point is it worth risking the lives of innocents in order to obtain revenge? Is that how it goes, round and round forever? I ask again, where does it end? To quote Alaria Sand. Fire and blood does not break the wheel, it greases it and makes it turn with even more ease. But I'm monologuing now and my name's not Emmett Booth. So what do you guys think? Is that what George is trying to get at with Dorn? Am I in the right vicinity?
2: Yeah, I you know, I am really glad that you brought up Elaria and, and her condemnation of the concept of vengeance. We've talked a lot over the course of this series about how vengeance is one of the central themes of the novels. And in my opinion, this Particular passage stands as one of the strongest rebuttals of this concept, of this urge for vengeance. In that moment in hotas A Dance with Dragons chapter, Doran seems to appreciate her sentiment, uh, though he does acknowledge that there's much she's unaware of. After she departs, the scorn of the sand snakes is unleashed upon her. They let loose all of their ill conceived notions about how best to achieve vengeance and their ideas are unilaterally violent. Dorian threatens to send them back to their cells, but says instead he's going to bring them to the water gardens so that they can learn the lesson the first Daenerys taught her son. This is your realm. Remember them in everything you do. Dorian continues the lesson in case his nieces don't go in for metaphorical language. He says, it's an easy thing for a prince to call the spears, but in the end, the children pay the price. For their sake, the wise prince will wage no war without good cause, nor any war he cannot hope to win. In this, he echoes people like Jorah Mormont and Varys who are speaking about the suffering of the small folk when the high lords play their game of thrones, but uh, in a much less fatalistic way. Doran represents a very different concept of community than the rest of Westeros. And this gets back to what Kyle was mentioning earlier about the success of their mainly defensive posture, right? Doran hopes that his nieces will come to understand both his caution and the way he and their father operated together. They were such a a yin and yang concept as he explains it he needs them to know that he holds back to protect them and the people of Dorne their very way of life and that Dornish princes have a long history of doing so that's what he hopes the lesson of the water gardens will teach them uh, which is you know so very interesting when you consider Yoke Boy's point about Doran being anti dorne in terms of the popular conception of what the place and the people of the place represent.
3: Excellent points, guys. So we've talked about George crafting Doran to be this player, but ultimately, is he a wise and patient player or is he an avoidant procrastinator? And a shout out to our patron, Quarren Halfhand, for these thoughts. I think I'll go. I think it's tough to call if he is ultimately a good player or a procrastinator because his story is not done. So far, he has probably been right in not risking his people in order to engage in an unwinnable war. I understand that fear and I think that's very real. That's good and fair leadership, and someone trigger happy might have beggared Dawn by now, I think. Sending Quentin off was a risk, but in a way it was a contained one, and sadly that has not turned out very well at all, as we know. But it was still Doran being active as he was forging the dornish Targaryen alliance between Ariane and Viserys that Oberyn oversaw at the Sea Lord's Palace many years ago. So there's strong examples that Doran has actually been proactive in some areas about sowing these seeds of Dornish revenge, and that he will take a risk where that risk is sort of confined and limited. However, he is a man of secrets. He does all of this with his cards firmly placed against his chest. And so it's easy to see why. To the Dornish everyman, and to characters like the Sand Snakes, that Doran does really appear to be an avoidant procrastinator and ultimately this sort of image that these characters have the the Dornish and the Sand Snakes might be all that matters and could very well lead to his downfall. What do you think
1: Kyle? Yeah Duran is so interesting when we were going through this and uh, trying to land on a side it's interesting because I think you find yourself defending Duran in some aspects and then Also, seeing where he took too long. It has been 17 years. This is a heck of a plot, Duran. You better get started. And it made me think of um, Survivor, really, the reality television show on CBS Survivor. My wife and I are huge fans of it. And that's what got me me thinking about it here. One of the show's winners, John Cochran, wrote an award-winning paper when he was in Harvard Law School. He's never released it publicly, but he speaks about it often. And he talks about how one of the primary points to his theory – is that the largest variable which attributes to an individual winning the game, and he's talking about Survivor here, but this can be the Game of Thrones. It works the same. He says that the largest variable which attributes to an individual winning the game is not the moves that the individual makes. Instead, it's when they make those moves. This is to say that the timing of a decision has a higher correlation to success than the decision itself in a vacuum. So to defend Duran here for a moment, I think this line of thinking does favor Duran as a good player. Now his story's not over, like Yoke Boy said, lots could change, but it does appear that he's not just playing to gain senseless revenge, which will ultimately weaken his position, he's playing to actually win the Game of Thrones. As in, he will not make his first major public move until the timing is right, until that move puts himself and Dorne on the winning side. Could he have poisoned Tywin in the past, or harried the Reach, or done any number of things to be an aggressor and demanded certain recompense from the throne? Sure, he could have, but would that have won him anything? No, he would have been in the same position he's in now, only with greater hostility and danger aimed toward his people and his family. So, has Duran been the most patient person ever to exist on Planetos? Other than maybe like Blood Raven? Yes. However, I think he's right to wait for the correct timing, even if the fruit is becoming a bit overripe.
2: Uh, I like that. I had to see what you did there. <laughs> so when Doran meets with Arianne after her imprisonment in A Feast for Crows, he tells her that she may have brought them to the brink of war with her plot to crown Myrcella. And he finally begins to bring her into his confidences. He mentions how Dorne is the least populous of all the seven kingdoms and tells her it pleased the young dragon to make all our armies larger when he wrote that book of his so as to make his conquest that much more glorious It has pleased us to water the seed he planted and let our foes think us more powerful than we are. But a princess ought to know the truth. Valor is a poor substitute for numbers. Dorne cannot hope to win a war against the Iron Throne, not alone. And that that statement is just so based in reality and so crafty and cunning and there's so many things to unpack there but what he's really revealing is how the dornish have maintained this illusion of defensive superiority for generations through a strategy that's basically subterfuge and avoidance the very strategy that he's continued to maintain all these years since his sister's death. So I think that he is, uh, to answer the question, he's a little bit of both wise and patient and avoidant. But the avoidance isn't only part of his strategy, it's part of his DNA. However, I think that the last two words in that quote that I just read, not alone, are the key because the patient part of Doran has been waiting for that right ally, for years, 17 years now. And in the moment of that conversation, he's convinced that the time to reveal that chosen ally is almost nigh, and that that's where this is going.
3: Very good. And let's continue to focus on Doran and his plotting. Probably the most well-known is the plot to gain vengeance for his sister Elia's death, This is a long game, 17 years in the making, as we've been saying. How far back does the plan go? And in what ways do we see it playing out on page in these Dornish chapters and beyond? Kyle?
1: Yeah, so what's so interesting about Dorn in general is there's so much we still don't know. And that's kind of what we're going to start, begin talking about really here and have been talking about. But we know that the first, or at least I believe the first official move of this plan seems to be Oberyn's visit to Bravos, where he meets with Sir Willem Derry to sign a pact regarding the marriages of Viserys and Ariane. That's a big political move. If Oberyn's discovered or anybody learns of this, that's I mean, absolutely treason of the highest degree. You know, you're forming a, a, a wedding contract with a potential foreign invader. Um so I think that is the first official move. It likely takes place somewhere between we know it's somewhere between 281 to 289. Perhaps there's more details that give us a, a tighter time frame. Feel free to shoot us those if, if you have any. Um, but so, to answer your first official move, 281 to 289. Another piece of this that I just find so mysterious is, is Lady Malario of Norvos. Notably mysterious. She and Duran fought throughout their marriage, and in large part, she took issue with the Westerosi practice of fostering out children. When Duran brought up potentially fostering Ariane and Tyrosh, Lady Malario threatened to harm herself before Duran gave in, but then she just leaves and goes back to Norvos after Tristane's birth, and she doesn't, or what we're told at least, that she doesn't fight to take her children, she wants them to keep their titles, which is great, but these are very suspicious details for George to include, because they are descriptive details that don't seem like they're describing the same person, and If you're here, you are pretty well acclimated with George, and if you know anything about George, that sounds like the proverbial canary in the coal mine that we are missing information.
2: Yes, I think you're right. I think uh, that the contradictions that are present in the descriptions of Malario are odd. Uh, that we're missing information and that this is clearly a case of more to come. That lady definitely doth protest too much. <laughs> I mean, whatever she's doing currently just doesn't seem to fit with a woman who would have harmed herself if she was separated from her daughter. And then she just kind of buggers off to Norvos. She's like, okay, yeah, oh, in Ariel Hota, you can stay. Your, my sworn sword? Nah, I don't need you.
3: What is it about Georgian mothers?
2: No, he doesn't want them to be there. Well, so we definitely need to know more. But uh, another person we need to know more about is is Oberyn Martell. And we know a lot of the things that he did. They, we have an astonishing number of details of things he did. He um, slept with Lord Ironwood's paramour he, and then dueled with Lord Ironwood. He was exiled to Lys. He Gousted with Willis Tyrell and caused his, the injury that led to him being a cripple. Uh, he studied at the Citadel. He served in the Second Sons in the Disputed Lands. Formed his own sellsword company. He attended the tourney at Harrenhall. But he did all those things between the age of about 16 and up to the tourney of Harrenhall when he was in his maybe 20-ish, you know, uh, or early 20s. In the months and years after the tourney, specifically during the rebellion we don't really know what he did uh, other than that brief comment that he tried to raise Dorn against Robert after Elias death so we we don't hear from him until he shows up in Bravos signing that pact with Willem Derry. like you said had to be sometime between about 281 289 Danny Danny remembers it so you know probably later it, no she doesn't remember it i'm sorry but um we know that she remembers Willem Dowry, so, you know, it, we we can kind of compress it into that time period. But anyways, Tyrion, when he meets him, uh, when he comes to King's Landing, thinks how Oberyn had seldom left Dorn after the rebellion. But I bet that's not entirely true. That's the perception. So much of what some of the key players was doing is shadowy, like with Malario. And possibly like with Oberyn, and it feels intentional. So I I think really more will be revealed. I personally find it nearly impossible to believe that Doran would betroth his daughter, who, who would have been his heir, if not for this betrothal, to a penniless exiled prince whose reappearance would likely trigger a war... Almost certainly would trigger a war with the new king on the Iron Throne, who famously hates all Targaryens, without some kind of a plan to leverage Targaryen loyalists into being the friends and the support that he explicitly tells Arianne Doran would need to stand against the Iron Throne. He has no intention, nor has he ever had any intention, of going this alone. And and that sort of thing doesn't just happen magically. Uh, So it would take years of, you know, sort of diplomacy or or secret planning. So I think it's highly unlikely that Doran is going to leave all that stuff to chance. So I wonder if the adult members of House Martell, possibly including Malario and Oberyn, spent significant time in that decade before the novels begin, forging relationships and laying out other secret plans that we still don't know about. Uh, these are the, the details about friends at court and other allies that Dorne will need if they're ever going to capitalize on that agreed to marriage between Arianne and Viserys. And I just don't see how that piece of the puzzle could have been just left out, you know, been left to, oh, we'll figure it out when... <laughs> when the time comes. So.
3: It's very interesting to think about the, the gaps in the Doran and Oberyn schedule over the years and thinking, you know, what, they, what they've what they been up to and you offer some good explanations, I think. And just getting back to Malario, I just wonder from a writing perspective, if George just wanted to make Doran isolated for future events, and we'll probably cover... What I mean later, but you know, just to put Doran on his own, and you know, he's got Aereo, and then in in the winds of winter, he's, he's not going to have Aereo. So he cuts a very isolated figure. And in this world, I think isolated means vulnerable, which we'll get back to. And also, I just want to add something our patron and fellow YouTuber and podcaster, Through the Moon Door, said on our Discord forum about Doran's plotting. Are we sure Doran is the great plotter most people think he is? Every single one of his plans has failed and gotten people killed. He'll likely ally with Aegon, which will probably not end well. Yep. He also didn't get his revenge on either Tywin, Gregor or Armory. And yeah, I think these are great points and hopefully by the end of the stream we'll have critiqued this guy enough and laid out some of his flaws. For me, and as Through the Moon Door highlights, Doran has put too much stock in certain plans coming to fruition and does not adapt his plans well enough. This idea that he's got some secret and great mega plan up his sleeve is boggling to me as we have more than a fair idea of what his plans really are. His most important one was sending his son to Essos and we all know what happened there. Crispy Quentin. So, why don't we talk about, more about the background of the Quentin scheme with this question to you all. When he gets word that Viserys is dead, Doran sends his son Quentin to Daenerys in Marine, expecting she will abide by the terms of the agreement signed all those years ago in Braavos, originally a setup between Ariane and Viserys, Why do you think he thought that Daenerys would respond positively to Quentin's suit?
2: This is a fascinating question because it gets back to the debate about the nature of this man. Uh, First of all, he does acknowledge that Quentin went on a, quote, long and perilous voyage with an uncertain welcome at its end, and his anxiety in Arians chapters both in you know in the main series and in the sample chapters that we hear about is real but he must have had some level of confidence not only that quentin could convince danny but also in the value of convincing danny or why send him so would this confidence spring from naivete covert covert knowledge Cultural assumptions about people marrying their dead siblings, betrothed, like Ned marrying Kat in Brandon's place, uh, which is implied to be kind of what's expected, or something else. We don't really know yet. Uh, As for value, the same question applies to Danny that could be applied to Viserys. What is the value of this single person to a region that doesn't have the strength to stand alone? I mean, he... Couldn't have anticipated what Daenerys would bring to the equation in terms of, you know, her Unsullied um, and and whatever army she she might bring if she responded positively to Quentin. So, you know, you got short rumors of dragons, but uh, is that unexpected possibility enough to support your entire plan that you've waited 17 years for? So I think there's a lot more going on behind the scenes than has been made clear so far there's just gotta be something else that Doran knows that that we're
1: not being told yet yeah agreed almost choked in my coffee there I'm good now though um <laughs> <laughs> I, I agree with you that like we're talking about how Duran is so patient right but this is not the result of, of patience this is a, a new stimulus right Danny's queen of Marine and hey we had this pact maybe it'll work now that's kind of something new um however his Plan here kind of throws me for a loop. Daron's plan with Quentin and Danny here, especially just the way it's executed, there's just so much that's working against the plan actually being successful. Quentin is expected to show up in Marine and convince Queen Daenerys, the only known person in the world who has living dragons, to honor a pact that she won't know about until the moment Quentin tells her. Oh, and the pact does not have her name on it to start with, it's not even about her. Oh, and it was signed 15 years ago between two dead men. So, all of this is bad, it's not that attractive of a legal document, I suppose. I I can ask the Westerosi Bar Association for an opinion on that, but it doesn't seem very binding. So that's bad. Is Quentin showing up at least with a bunch of trappings of power that will make for an appealing display? no he's literally going to sneak into the city disguised as a turncloak sellsword that's bad does he have ships with him that can sail danny to westeros nope that's bad does he have men that will fight for her to help fight the harpies and marine nope 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 he's showing up and hoping that honestly what i think it is is i wonder if duran overestimated danny's interest and desire in returning to westeros more immediately not not that she doesn't want to per se return. We expect that she does. She certainly does, or she thinks she does. But we see all kinds of people underestimate or improperly estimate Daenerys Targaryen constantly. Earlier in, in Dance, we, we see Zoro, and Doxos offer her 13 ships to leave Marine. Many of her advisors urge her to take this offer and leave, and, and she declines. So I think this is kind of another example of the fact Ron thought this plan would work, is people underestimating Danny and severely in this circumstance, I think with Duran and Quentin's plot.
3: Okay. So we've talked about Duran as a political player. Let's get a bit more sort of personal now and think of Duran as a parent. My first question, just straight up, why didn't Duran share his plans with Ariane, which Seems to have caused problems, to say the least. What do you think, Kyle?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think there are a few reasons here. Primarily, Ariane is not only young, but she's notably a bit bullheaded and surrounded by other young and bullheaded individuals. I can imagine that Duran simply believed having her in the know could jeopardize the information, slowly leaking its way out. That kind of makes sense, even if it was unintentional. Additionally, having access to the knowledge can be damning and dangerous. What Duran was and is currently planning is treason. There's no other word. I mean it's treason against the crown from the crown's perspective. So Ariane being privy to this makes her an accessory and does potentially put her in harm's way. So I think those are two primary reasons to start with.
3: Yeah, I th- I really agree with you there. Strong agree. And I think Arios' words to Ariane about the failed Queen Maker disaster do work well here someone always tells. Duran's not stupid. He he knows this lesson. So, yeah, he knows the danger of a spoken secret and likely thought nothing positive was going to come from tell, telling Arianne and letting her be privy to these plans. Lady Gwynn?
2: Yeah, I, mean, I definitely hard agree with everything you guys have said. I, I mean, um, I, I like what you said, Kyle, about it being you know, protective on some level of her keeping her in the dark. You know, that's that's not an uncommon thing. And uh, and certainly being protective of his planning, um, you know, Ariel isn't alone in knowing someone always tells the stakes are just too high and the outcome too uncertain to take Ariane into his confidence, especially when she was quite young. I mean, let's not forget if she hadn't gone ahead with her Marcella plot uh, that he would have gone right on keeping her in the dark. I mean, it's really the only reason that she knows and, and we know <laughs> the, the details at this point are because she, she took that initiative and went ahead with her own
0: subplot.
4: Find out how much at airbnb.com slash boast. So
3: why don't we further the question, was this a major parental and stroke or political failing? What do
1: you think, Kyle? So again, bouncing back and forth here on Duran, right? I defended him, he was being he was you know defending his his child from knowing what was going on and um, didn't want the word to get out, those two things make sense. But was it a mistake parent-wise or politically? Yeah, I think it clearly was. Ariane might be strong-willed, but she's also quite intelligent. If Duran had simply had the same conversation we see him have with her at the end of the Princess in the Tower chapter, if he has that conversation at an earlier point, She probably becomes his primary champion, and his life with the Sand Snakes becomes a hell of a lot easier, and they have a lot of influence, so that would have helped him. And do we have proof that this is what would have happened? Well, after he tells Rien at the end of The Princess in the Tower, she becomes his primary champion, and his life with the Sand Snakes becomes a hell of a lot easier, so yes, it was clearly a mistake to not tell her at a certain point. And this is where I think you start to turn against Duran's caution a little bit. Caution's great. Even extreme caution when the stakes are extreme, right? But what happens when you're overly cautious is your moves turn into half measures. And, and that's kind of what happens with Duran and his, his children. If you're going to send Quentin to, Doreen, to Marine, it, it can't be a half measure. Send Quentin at least with a full retinue so he doesn't look like the world's biggest beggar when he shows up before the Dragon Queen. It just His odds of that plan being successful were extremely low the way you decided to implement the plan. Tell your brilliant daughter of your plans and let her use her influence to help you before the, it's, it's midnight on the clock of the narrative. So yeah, I, I think it was a mistake and Duran could have been a little bit more active in who he was having help him
3: great points. Personally, I, I I think that Doran has failed to prepare both Quentin and Ariane for their game ahead. Evidence, like you say, you know, Quentin looking like a sort of useless beggar is never really going to impress Daenerys much, was it? Doran knew the complex game he himself was in and he also knew that his children would be part of that game somewhere along. Yet my impression of both of his, both of these children, is that they are politically naive. This has to be on Doran, and I think it's less forgivable than, say, Ned Stark, who has naive young kids in some respects, but that was in a completely different political sphere and circumstance. And among the High Lords of Westeros, parental failures are in fact equal to political failings because like it or not such children are the political future of these houses and indeed of the entire realm
1: yeah um i would agree and especially with with ned stark not having his head in politics or however you want to want to say about it we all know that ned wasn't a politician right he he overthrew an, an evil king rightfully and his best bud's been sitting on the throne for the best part of two decades. Unlike Duran, Duran's been plotting for two decades. So hes it's not like he hasn't been aware that his children were, whether he likes it or not, involved in his political plotting. You can't even, to no degree can you plan to overthrow powerful people in your country and not have it involve your children in this world. And Duran knows that. So it's very different from Ned, who was just happy as a clam hanging out in Winterfell.
2: Yeah, I definitely agree. I think this was a uh, both a political and a parental failing by Doran. You guys laid out the why on the political side of things pretty well. But let's look at the basics of parenting. By failing to take his children into his confidence, he basically sets them up as adversaries. It's unlikely that Quentin grew up being privy to all these details, so... What does he think about his sister when Doran sends him off and uh, suddenly he's being groomed to be the next leader of Dorne? I mean, he got that letter that, that um, Arianne saw that she shouldn't have seen, it telling him that he was going to be the next Prince of Dorne. I mean, that is in opposition to all Dornish tradition. And then things change suddenly and and he, a young man who literally thinks adventure stinks is sent off to uh, go win over this dragon queen with a very small retinue of, of people going with him, uh, while his sister gets to take on the role that he had been groomed for all his life. So on the other hand, you got Arianne's feelings about Quentin, which are very explicit. She's got resentment. She's got jealousy for certain. And then in the Ariane 1 sample chapter, she spends a great deal of time trying to convince herself that she loves her brother and wants him to come back safely. But the principal message to the reader you get from that passage is doubt, well-salted with guilt. I don't think you can call a father who actively fosters that sort of relationship and those sorts of feelings between his children, even if it's unintentional, a parental success. In fact, dare I say he is closer to Tywin than to the Ned on this particular spectrum.
3: Wow, damning words indeed. That's not to say he's just like Tywin, but just nearer on the spectrum than the old Ned. So this brings us to Arianne's plotting. We'll talk about Arianne a lot more in future live streams, I think. But in A Feast for Crows, we saw her... Almost as a proto Doran plotting with a small group of allies to crown Marcella Baratheon, Queen of the Seven Kingdoms. How was this plot related to Doran's Quentin plot? And did Ariane have goals other than simply crowning Marcella? What do you think, Kyle? Yeah, what's
1: interesting is that Ariane's plan is at least a little similar to Duran's as far as broad strokes go, right? Let's find a new queen with a good claim to the Iron Throne so that we can try to overthrow the Lannisters. Basically, that's the, the idea. Ariane is not at this point aware of the Quint Danny plot. Again, communication skills Duran, please, improve. But Marcella is right here in Dorne already. So why wouldn't we just use her from Ariane's perspective? So I think it's kind of interesting that it's similar in that way.
2: Yes. I mean, she wasn't aware of the Quentin Daenerys plot, but she knew enough for us to say with confidence that her plot was definitely related to it. Without Doran and his secret plan to marry her to Viserys, Arianne never feels that sense of betrayal and anger that led her to this moment. Uh, Because her plot wasn't just about crowning Marcella, In fact, in my opinion, crowning Marcella, with whom she identifies as a woman whose birthright has been stolen from her, is really just a projection of her own feelings and desires, one that happens to have the potential to work seamlessly with her own long term goals as she sees it. In Aries Okart's chapter, when Ariane reveals her plan for Marcella and the depth of her pain about the Quentin situation, it's made clear that she thinks Quentin's secret mission is about deposing her. And we learn in the Queenmaker chapter that her intention after crowning Marcella, is to strike first and depose Doran himself, expecting that she would send him to the water gardens to live out the rest of his days while all of Dorne rallies to her banners. She even thinks about having Darkstar destroy the Ironwoods, which it would really be some feat, and speaks a lot about what she thinks is Dark Star's power, which is something we're gonna get into more in our next stream. Uh, but what she would do about Quentin himself, she never really thinks. But this has got to be the source of that guilt and doubt that I mentioned just a few minutes ago, that comes up in her uh, Winds of Winter chapter.
3: Nice. I I like that you use the word projection which sort of describes the entire sequence and her motives in one word. So, yeah, that's the word I like. So, of course, Ariane's plot was foiled ultimately because her father is a much better keeper of secrets than she is. One of her allies betrayed her, there's no doubt. So, when wondering who exactly betrayed her, Ario Hotar remarks that someone always tells in this kind of iconic line from the Dornish story. So I'm wondering, who do you think told, and perhaps don't just explain why it was X, but you can talk about why it wasn't Y and Z. Lady Gwynne.
2: OK, well, you know, we talked about this in the regular episode, and we arrived at the conclusion that it was very likely spotted Silva. When Ariane is imprisoned, she thinks about who it was. She spends a lot of time thinking about who could have betrayed her. And because she thinks explicitly about the group that accompanied her to the Green Blood, in my opinion, those are the candidates that we have to consider. From a, because I think of it as like from a mystery writing perspective, I don't see how this this is a who done it, right? So I don't see how that involving someone from outside the group that's laid out in that chapter really makes sense. I mean, I, I would personally see it as a kind of cheap trick by the author if he draws in another ca- candidate at the finish line and he's like, oh, yeah, you were, it was, you thought it was these people, but it's actually someone else. I don't know. That that's. The way I look at it and as I see it, the possibilities are people that were with her. So you've got Aries O'Kart, suicide mission. Wow, that was really successful. Or you've got Darkstar as some sort of false flag, which isn't really borne out by what follows. So uh, Or Garen of the Green Blood again, not really borne out by his reaction to Hota's appearance and his later punishment, which is kind of merciful, but it extends to his extended family who helped with the boat and everything there. So I, I think that was a real punishment. Uh, Andre Dalt, who in I think is the runner up in terms of likelihood. Uh, he kind of surrenders to Hota immediately. He, his personality is that he's a noted gossip. So that would fit the severity of his punishment. couple years with Malario, not that tough, right? I mean, so, you know, I think it could be him. But then you got spotted Silva. Why, why is she the one? Chiefly because her reaction to Hota on page goes completely unnoticed. Of all the other people that are there, nothing. Crickets. So very clever, George. I see what you're doing there. And then you've got what Doran says to Arianne about what he's done to all of her companions. And he says, Lady Silva received no punishment from me. Now, again, that's a kind of a soundbite because he goes on to say... Uh, that she's been, her father shipped her off to marry old Lord Estermont on Greenstone. So yeah, very clever, George, but those those words, Lady Silva received no punishment. Hmm, yeah, I don't know about that. Then, then here's the thing. In A Dance with Dragons, we hear that, uh, this is in a John Connington chapter. We hear that Greenstone has been taken by a group of the Golden Company, which includes Mark Mandrake and elephants. John Connington commands, that they leave a garrison behind and bring the rest of his men over to Cape Wrath, along with any noble captives, which of course would include Silva Santigar. Now, since a month has gone by between that that chapter, uh, before Arianne arrives at Griffin's Roost to discover that Aegon and Connington and all of you know all of the people with them have gone to Storm's End. And in the meantime, she's heard rumors of elephants in the rainwood. I think we can safely assume that Mark Mandrake, the elephants, and his noble prisoners from Greenstone, which would include Silva again, have arrived from Greenstone and they have gone on to Storm's End with John Connington. The conclusion... Arianne is set to come face to face with Silva Santagar in her third winds of winter chapter, which sets us up very nicely for a reveal to the mystery of who told, which, in my opinion, is classic George.
3: Right? Yeah, that's a that's a great point. The, the last point you made, you you know, I don't I don't think I've heard it before, and it it's very smart and I, I think that if they are on a collision course, then you have to ask yourself why? Why is George bringing Silver Santagar and Ariane together? You know, so we'll have to. As soon as we get the Winds of Winter, we can, uh, you know, get to Ariane three, and we'll be seeing if they if those two meet as Lady Gwyn predicts. I, I will say that I, I agree with your number one and number two choices, and in support of Spotted Silver being prime suspect number one, that in Ariane's Princess in the Tower chapter, she does reminisce on all the old men that she was set up with. Here's the passage with Doran I'll read out. Such plans, Giles Rosby, Blind Ben Beesbury, Greybeard Granderson, they were your plans. I know it is my duty to provide an heir for Dawn. I have never been forgetful of that. I would have wed, and gladly... But the matches that you brought to me were insults. With every one, you spit on me. If you ever felt any love for me at all, why offer me to Walder Frey? So, ostensibly, this passage highlights the miscommunications between father and daughter, because Doran never really wanted her to be matched up with these people. However, it also serves to highlight the fact that this kind of dynamic of a young highborn lady with an older highborn man is quite a normal matchup in this Westerosi world we're in. So it reminds us, in a pertinent setting, that Spotted Silver's position in marriage to Lord Eldon of Estermont is really nothing quite out of the ordinary and not something we should assume is necessarily a punishment. Which brings us to Lady Gwyn's observation about Doran not punishing Silver. Highly suspicious stuff, I think. So, as for the person that tells being outside of Arian's little group that Lady Gwyn mentioned, I think George doesn't bend over backwards with his mysteries, and that sometimes they do get overthought. Schema characters such as Littlefinger and indeed Doran, do attract over theorizing and perhaps their surrounding mysteries aren't quite as complex as people imagine so that's my t- two cents that that it's probably something simpler than that what do you think Kyle
1: yeah i got to say this was probably my favorite part of your guys overall dorn episode for this section you know of course you always wondered you know, who, who was it who told, right. And there didn't really seem to be, at least from my perspective, right. That strong of evidence for one individual over the other. But I thought what was great about that is the evidence provided for spotted Silva is, is great. You know, it's solid. It makes sense. It fits George's thought, thought process, how he typically writes. I do think Dalt serves as a somewhat reasonable second choice. There are some solid thoughts there with him going off to Norvos and that kind of seems a little suspicious, but the lack of detail, first off, regarding Silva's reaction to Hota's appearance, something George loves to do. Sometimes you can you can have good writing by not writing. It's just not said, right? Hmm, that's already suspicious. Duran saying that Silva receives no further punishment. Hmm, that's kind of a little speculatory as well. For being shipped off to Eastermont and then, ah, here's a little creme de la creme on this meal. She is conveniently in a location where she's set to collide with where Ariane is going once you kind of see that and again who knows if this is right but once you see that it sure does seem like it fits how george often likes to write you're like it's probably this person and i'm gonna go put them where if they can collide with Ariane, i have a nice little interesting thing to happen in a chapter in the future so i i think when you look at it that way she seems like the overwhelming favorite and i probably wouldn't have thought that before your dorn episode so Good job, Radio Westeros, to put some praise on you guys.
3: Uh, yeah, so it's another reason to look forward to the Winds of Winter. We're going to find out who always tells whether it's Silver or not, and we can, you know, drink in Chapter 3 of Arianne's... Yeah, Ariane 3, and, you know, it, we can make the assumption that these two are going to collide and see what happens in that chapter. So... Let's move on. Once Doran reveals his true intentions to his daughter, he gives her a covert mission that she'll be conducting in the Winds of Winter. What is his goal in sending Ariane to the Stormlands? Kyle?
1: I think the goal is clearly to treat with Fagon and the Golden Company. And Doran is still being a little cautious here. It's specifically noted, you know, Ariane is supposed to send back a letter with one word that's coded back to duran clearly he's being a little bit uh cautious here or very cautious maybe but i will say this is a big difference here duran has put a tremendous amount of power with Ariane here she is expressly the individual who will be making the decision as to how the relationship with dorne and, and fagon's camp is to proceed with a single word she will decide if Dorne is to go to war or not. This is finally a massive amount of trust Duran is placing in, in Ariane's hands. Clearly, Duran is finally, after 17 years, looking to make his move to enter the game proper. There may never be a better opportunity. The plan must be, in my opinion, to wed Ariane to young grift, Fagon is the believed to be heir to the Iron Throne. There just might not be a better opportunity.
3: Did you put a T on the end of Young Griff? Then did I hear you correctly? Griff.
1: <laughs> 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 t- 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 yes, hard T. <laughs>
3: you
2: did. You definitely did. <laughs> I, love, I love it. Okay.
1: I call. You know, I call a spade a spade. That's all.
2: It's Good. Good call. Uh, I, <laughs> I f- personally, I think that Dorian originally meant for Arian to be a fact finder. She's supposed to evaluate the boy and Lord Connington as potential allies. Like, you know, just the way he says, but I can see it developing into some sort of alliance, maybe a marriage alliance at some point. And what's interesting about this mission is that at the time it begins, both young Griff and Quentin have designs on marrying Daenerys, who has no intention of marrying either one of them. John Connington is very clear when Haldon makes suggestions about various marriage alliances, that Aegon is to be preserved for Daenerys. So in the short term, I could see Haldon tri- ha- trying, which he already has done, to set up a marriage between John Connington and Arianne. But what happens when Quentin's failure becomes known and Danny catches the blame? So I think this is where Ariane and Aegon come in, I think. So there's this kind of wild card, however, with Ilya Sand, Lady Lance, who is a 14-year-old rebel noted to be fond of horses and jousting. Sound familiar at all? Maybe? I'll get you there. She's fond of kissing men that she shouldn't. Uh, you see that in the Arianne sample chapter. Excuse me.
1: Who does that sound like? I can't imagine... Who rides uh, half a centaur or something along those lines?
3: I think Lady Gwyn might have been talking about Lyanna Stark with her old boy Rhaegar.
2: But uh, yeah, you're right. That's exactly what I was implying.
3: So I, I will just add this this idea that Lady Gwyn mentioned that Arianne and Aegon could get married. I mean, like in some ways it doesn't seem like it's going to go that way, but I I think that it works personally. I think that it will. I'm not sure people agree with me, but we'll have to see in the Winds of Winter, but it would be a way of setting Danny against Aegon and sort of, you know, sort of scuppering two sets of plans at once. Dawn and Aegon would then be pretty much doomed (laughs) against Daenerys dragons, which, We're kind of expecting, so it does make some sense. Okay, on to the next question. Doran is as of yet unaware of his son's fate. Uh Uh-oh. How and when will he find out what happened to Quentin? What will his reaction be? Will we see it on page? Kyle.
1: This is an interesting one as we get into kind of further down the line. We're really speculating now, right? At some point past primer chapters, whatever you want to, you know, sample chapters. Um, So I think it's really interesting. Uh, We're going to talk about these POVs kind of going away, but I guess if I was going to make a a speculatory guess, perhaps, you know, when Ariel Hota returns from his adventures, we learn of Duran's reaction to the news that he's gotten regarding Quentin, but it doesn't seem like he's going – We'll find out. It does not seem like we will see Doran soon in the Winds of Winter with these POVs not coming back anytime soon. We've got Ario going off to High Hermitage and Ariane not seeming like she'll return to Sunspear anytime soon.
2: Yeah, I mean, I really I struggle with this because I really want to see Dorian get this news. But his viewpoints are so far away for the time being, and I, I definitely agree. Ariane isn't coming back anytime soon, uh, but I, I do want to point out something about the timeline. Quentin is still very much alive when Arianne departs Dorne, and his death probably sinks more with her arrival at Griffin's Roost or maybe even Storm's End, which will happen like a day or two after. It's very, they're very close together, so it's its right in that in that kind of time frame. So, allowing for news to travel by ship, which is the principal way we get news from far-flung parts of Essos, it could be a long time before news of Quentin's death gets back to Dorne. In fact, considering what's about to happen there in uh, in Marine, it, it might even have to wait for his companions, or you know, any number of other people, to weather the Battle of Fire. Uh, before that news leaks out and in, in, you know, if it's coming from one of his companions, you know, for them to finish, you know, get through that battle, return to Sunspear to tell Doran in person, which I would imagine would be what they would want to do. Uh, that could be a, a long time coming, uh, maybe months, which in my opinion increases the likelihood that we're going to see it in Ario viewpoint. Arianne, I fear, is going to, hear this news by raven. So as for Torian's reaction, you know, it's the death of his hopes, obviously. It's what he everything he's been planning for and and hoped would come to pass. But somehow I see Danny taking the blame for this. Uh and uh, you know, Arianne has already wondered if Danny had Viserys killed and there was almost Will almost certainly be rumors about Danny and Drogo, whom she literally did kill. Uh, so her involvement in Quentin's death is not going to play well in Dorne, especially if the news comes from anyone other than his surviving companions. And even then, we can't be sure how much blame might be laid at Daenerys's door. And so, is this the point? at which Doran turns to another marriage alliance between one of his children and a different Targaryen.
3: Yeah, good points. So I agree that it's really set up for Danny to have some horrific PR as she gets ready to come to Westeros, which might be in the latter pages of The Winds of Winter. So talking of The Winds of Winter... winter how much of Duran will we see in the upcoming novel with the two Dornish POVs actually heading away from him and Sunspear Kyle we did we did brush on this but why don't we go over it yeah
1: i was pulling myself away from jumping into this question cuz this is the right kind of the writing part that i think is really interesting um probably not much if at all it's possible that we're not physically with Duran during wins you know, depending on what chapters get included in the book, blah blah blah, whatever. Um but we might see a lot of just through through Ravens. Now I agree with Lady Gwyn that I would love to see I don't want to see Duran hurt that his son is dead. That's a horrible thing to say, but but I do want to see what happens when he learns learns of it. It's it's a book. I want to see what happens. Um but I don't think we'll see very much of him with the POVs going away, like we said uh what's interesting i kind of noted down that we have this lettering thing set up with Ariane early on in wins we know that there's already this planned connection between the two Ariane's to send back a letter i'll read it real briefly briefly after she meets with young griff john connington and the golden company she's to send back word to her prince father uh and it says here She's thinking to herself, waiting for dragons, for fire and blood. For me, one word from Arianne and those armies would march, so long as that word was dragon. If instead the word she sent was war, Lord Ironwood and Lord Fowler and their armies would remain in place. The Prince of Dorne was nothing if not subtle. Here, war meant wait. So with this mechanism of letters already being established that we're going to learn important information about Duran through ravens I wonder if we'll have something similar with him learning about Quentin pretty interesting wording here Duran sits in sun spirit waiting for dragons for fire and blood little does he know that's exactly what's very unfortunately waiting for him as he waits for Arian's news of dragons the news of dragons regarding his son's death will be a horrible thing death by flame is is surely on its way from Marine. It, it sure seems so kind of some interesting contrast there between his two children
3: yeah and as kyle said earlier i don't see Ariane making her way back to sunspear anytime soon i feel like reading those two chapters that she's only just began her journey there right so and i also think that aria hotar has just begun his journey and he's going to be gone for some time. So just from a POV perspective, there's no eyes on Doran, And so I wouldn't be surprised if there is an epistolary of correspondences with Ariane, as Kyle mentioned again. This leaves Duran as an off-page character, for the most part at least. I think this suits George just fine. It's a way to keep up the level of curiosity and mystique, for one thing. I think Ariel will be back at some point, hopefully before the end of Winds, to watch so we can see what happens to the guy, which we'll be discussing shortly. And it could even be the end of the line from him. If not in the end pages of the Winds of Winter, then perhaps in the dream for spring. What do you think, Lady Gwyn?
2: Yeah, I definitely agree. I mean, Arianne is definitely, I feel, certainly set to be a point of view for the Stormlands, which is interesting because you have, that leaves John Connington uh, possibly free to go elsewhere. A mission to King's Landing, a military campaign into the reach. How fascinating would it be to see the war that's been ravaging Westeros move into an area that we've seen very little of and has been largely untouched? I don't know, but that's getting ahead of ourselves. But it does relate to how little Arianne uh, will actually probably have to do with Dorne as a as a location or a theater in the Winds of Winter other than those ravens that she's exchanging with her father. Given the timeline, Ariel Hota might get back to Sunspear in time to witness the return of Garrus Drinkwater and Archibald Ironwood, assuming they survive the Battle of Fire and are allowed to leave Marine, and then survive what happens afterwards. But expect this to be much later in the book if this happens, which is exactly why it could occur in time to tie into Hota's return to uh, Sunspear because as we discussed uh, in the last live stream there's definitely a lot of action that could be going on with Ariel Hota on his mission into the west of Dorne.
3: Yeah and in the last live stream I think we were taking predictions and we said probably three or four Hota chapters can't see more than four can't see less than three really so how many are going to be spent on the way to high hermitage and all that kind of palaver that's got to take a you know a couple so it's slim pickings for doran i think so in the absence of his brother he's placing a lot of faith in his nieces to help carry out his plans will this work out for him or will it prove to be a mistake? I have to kind of chuckle to myself about the idea of asking the Sand Snakes in on in on the scheme to be anything other than a mistake. What do you think, Kyle?
1: Yeah, it's a major mistake. I mean, mistake! Like, I get it. He's... I get it. We just you know raked him over the coals for not trusting people and now we're gonna say no not those people but it it seems like sending the sand snakes like he's giving very 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 important roles to his plan the members of the sand snakes who we've seen within the last two novels relatively recently this is within the last six months probably basically say that they want to see the world burn around them in one way or another so you're sending them off to king's landing with lannister still there it just, I would love over-under odds on how long it will take for notable people in King's Landing to start dying under mysterious circumstances once the Sand Snakes arrive in King's Landing. So it's good to trust people, but yeah, it, it just seems like it's, it's hilarious that George is maybe telling us, yeah, this is going to end in catastrophe,
3: yeah, it's interesting what you said about be- dragging Doran over the coals and then sort of wanting to drag him over the other way over the coals. Yeah,
1: I feel bad, yeah. but
3: <laughs> there's just so many ways that Doran trusting the sand snakes could go wrong and probably will. For a start, are they really as loyal to him as Oberyn was? If he if Doran is seeing them as his sort of replacement, I don't think so. Does he have the same yin-yang factor with him that he very likely did with Oberyn? Nope. And after the chaos of A Storm of Swords, George has been slowly building through Feast Dance to more points of political climax. So we can guess that from a writing perspective, shit is going to go down with regards to Doran in some form or another. something's major is going to happen. With his cautious soul, it's not going to be a surprise if one or some of the Sand Snakes betray him on some level. From Abara taking out Balon Swan on that mission to High Hermitage, to Nymeria killing who the heck she wants in King's Landing, thanks Kyle, there are possibilities that could lead to lead to doran's house of cards falling completely apart if doran wanted to play it safe he is going to have an impossible task putting these
1: snakes back in their bottle kyle i think that's great putting the snakes back in the bottle and that's kind of what Duran has to do it, it reminds me of this half measures thing i said earlier right like you're you're doing it you've made the decision right you're you're putting the plan forward so it's time to drop the act of overcaution you've already committed right if you've already committed stop the half measures it's no longer a secret you're committed to this course of action those birds have flown whatever idiom fits you best um i do think and that's not to demonize the sand snakes i do think i believe their initial pledge of loyalty to duran in the chapter that we see that I think they mean that but that doesn't mean that when Nymeria gets King's Landing she's not going to act on her own behest so that that's all I mean there's just lots of ways it could go wrong that's all there's lots of different avenues that could lead to it going in ways Duran doesn't expect and it's time to stop worrying about that because you can no longer really control it if you wanted to go down this route Or if you didn't want to go down this route, you shouldn't have gone down this route The you know, genie's out of the bottle, whatever idiom fits you.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think, uh, you know, last time, last live stream, Joe Buckley talked about Dorian wanting to kind of trying to replace his family, you know, with using the sand snakes to sort of fill in for Oberyn, but they, they really lack a lot of the shared, you know, experiences and connections that, obrin and doran had as brothers right so they're they're a poor substitute for their father in that regard and you know them taking matters into their own hands once they get to king's landing is telegraphed so clearly by nymeria in uh Ariel Hota's the watcher chapter in a dance with dragons she says if Gregor clegane is alive soon or late the truth will out The man was eight feet tall. There is not another like him in all of Westeros. If any such appears again, Cersei Lannister will be exposed as a liar before all the seven kingdoms. She would be an utter fool to risk that. What could she hope to gain? Well, what indeed? But when Nymeria and Tyene arrive in King's Landing, and there's Robert Strong in all his eight-foot glory... What do we think is going to happen? Uh, Add to that whatever unpredictable response they get from a highly paranoid Cersei Lannister when they show up with Marcella, but without Dorad, Tristane, or Balon Swan, who was her covert agent and knew all the details of this plan. And how long do you think it will take before things really start to go sideways? I give it under five minutes.
3: Five minutes, Lady Gwynn gives it. But one thing's for sure, how this all unfolds is going to be very entertaining for us readers. How the Doran's House of Cards comes down, and I'm sure it will, is going to be page-turning stuff. And so let's move on to a question from our patron, TJ Harrington. So we know that Doran's heart's desire is fire and blood, there's speculation that uh, Aegon Targaryen, who is currently invading Westeros, is a fake Targaryen and that he is in fact a blackfire. The question is, if this is true, would Doran Martell care if Aegon or Faegon is a red or if he is a black? What do you think, Kyle.
1: So I have some minor... It's it's Saturday night. Let's put on just a little bit of tinfoil to kind of talk about this. I have minor musings about if Duran has had some level of knowledge with regards to Fagon. It certainly seems like he doesn't. He seems to be reacting to Fagon, clearly. But for some reason, I find myself just a little bit suspicious of it. Maybe it's because we don't know enough about Duran or whatever. But as has been the primary topic of the evening... Duran is cautious. Right now, Duran perhaps thinks he can merge the causes of Fagon and Danny if his wacky plan with Quentin somehow works. However, if Fagon's true identity as a Blackfire is in fact revealed, Duran will find himself smack dab in the middle of the Dance of the Dragons 2.0, with his son and daughter on opposing factions. So he has planned so carefully for 17 years this takeover and from the the latest information we have it seems like the most obvious course of action is that arian's going to end up in the camp with young griff danny's going to come back seeking some sort of alliance with doran and Duran's going to find himself in the worst political position he ever could have hoped for so i don't even remember what question i'm answering but that's bad so i think it does matter to him if Aegon is the real Aegon or not. Because if he's not, Duran's not in a good position.
2: Yes. Well, I, I think that this is a million dollar question. I think on the one hand, he cares very much, maybe, you know, for the reasons that you just laid out and for the more emotional reasons. I would weep for joy if some part of my sister had survived, he tells Arianne before she leaves Sunspear. But then again, at the end of the day, in terms of achieving his goals, which are vengeance, really, when it comes down to it, it won't matter. I mean, in fact, it it might just swing back the other way with Ilya and both of her children still dead, like he always thought. Maybe there's no complicated dilution of his need for vengeance. I mean, the emotional factor there of, well, actually one of them survived. I mean, does that does that impact, you know, his feelings about his long-term plan to take vengeance? So, I mean, I don't know, but Aegon himself is the self-proclaimed only dragon you need, right? How that plays out against someone who has actual dragons has yet to be seen. Uh, Doran may experience some doubt about that, but Aegon on the other hand, may yet gain a dragon. And in any case, Doran has gone up against real dragons before and come out on top, like we talked about at the beginning of the episode. So whatever occurs between Aegon and Daenerys in the long run, in the short term, we have to remember that Doran's goal is vengeance for Elia and that his beef is with people in King's Landing, the Lannisters. Until he finds out about Quentin. at which point his beef might be very much with Daenerys and at that point I think the color of Aegon's dragon won't matter to him one bit as long as he stands up against his aunt.
3: Great points guys. I think you've covered everything that that I would say. I'll just add on that you know a lot of people wonder why Quentin's chapters were included and what's the point to the you know greater story and the narrative as a whole and what people are missing is that the after effects, the ripple effect of Quentin dying and the potential that could do for changing and evolving the plot. And like we've been saying, it could suit Aegon with Ariane, which is a major, is a major development from both angles. So, You know, I don't think those chapters were for nothing or were superfluous at all. And like we said, we have to wait for this huge ripple effect of Dawn's son being roasted by dragons. Okay, guys, why don't we ask the question that many of us want answered? Will Doran survive the winds of winter? Why or why not? If not, how will he die exactly? And what are some of the sort of possibilities for questions and answers here? So, I'll I'll begin. I talked earlier and through the stream about how Doran is set up to contrast with the Dornish characters and their culture from the offset. He's isolated. He can't defend himself. And he's increasingly at odds with characters that are in his life. If the situation gets any worse... I think Doran could be in big trouble. Unfortunately for him, I believe there's every indication that things will get worse in Dawn. With the news of Quentin and Doran's probable resulting inaction as the potential spark, Doran could see his political Dornish allies turn against him, as well as the Sand Snakes, which many of us suspect, and let's not forget those Dornish everymen that have been mentioned to be in a dangerous mood. There could be a mob form- forming here, guys. If the people of Sunspear turn against Duran, he is going to be extremely vulnerable. I mean, what do we know of his protection? Ario's away. Even if he was there, what's he going to do about a Dornish mob? Don't forget that, like like I said, Dor- Ario is away. Although without him... Returning to the scene in Sunspear, we wouldn't be able to see anything that happens to Duran. So perhaps that's something we have to consider, that if we're going to see Duran's downfall on page, it probably has to be with Erio Hotar. So overall, Duran has plenty of potential enemies, few friends, and a long game plan that's already unravelling before our eyes, I think. The outlook is bleak for Duran Martel in the Winds of Winter. What do you think, Kyle?
1: Yeah, outlook's gotta be bleak. There's so many holes in it already, and like we've said, there's a lot we don't know, but when you can tangibly see what the issues are going to be already, it's likely that George put those there on purpose. So, doesn't look great for Duran. Will he be dead at the end of Winds? It's kind of hard to say. It's certainly possible. But that then gets into the discussion of how much is gonna fit into wins. It's likely that if Duran does survive the novel, it's only because Page Space saved him. But I would think ultimately Duran sits on extremely tenuous circumstances and is not long for Westeros.
2: Yes, I, I agree with what you've both said. Dorian Martell is increasingly isolated, vulnerable. if his captain is away or returns and is sent away again, who is there to protect him? And, you know, the question isn't so much if he dies so much, uh, in my opinion, but when and how. Page count is definitely a consideration, especially if he's got to stay alive to hear about Quentin on page or if he's somehow killed by a sand snake. It's one possibility that that occurs to me. I don't really want to lean on the show's portrayal of Doran really but you know there could be broad strokes there uh which is where my concern for Doran usually turns so uh, and actually as for Tristan who we haven't really talked about because we had so much to talk about with Doran that we haven't mentioned Tristan much um uh, much like in the in the books he's mentioned very tangentially but he does exist uh, so you know what is going to happen with him could you know is is his fate going to be similar to what uh, the TV show showed us? We don't know. You know, it would be so poetic and typical George for Doran's long quest for vengeance. All this complex maneuvering and playing this game um, to to gain vengeance uh, to lead only to the deaths of his own family. I mean, so far we've got Quentin and Oberyn, you know, he's he's not doing so well. So why not a few more, uh, which leaving him more and more and more isolated? Uh, so if those deaths are largely self-inflicted, so far, check, check. Uh, you know, this is going to result. They could be resulting from the implosion of his plans and his family if the sand snakes just start going off and doing their own thing in opposition to what what he's asked them to do. I think that's really all so much the better in terms of George's overall message re the theme of vengeance and, you know, the cautionary tales of what happens to people who make vengeance their primary focus.
3: Yeah, it's hard to imagine him having a sort of positive upstroke on the last word of vengeance so just to conclude from my point of view when Doran is done and dusted I think it's a reasonable outlook that he's a character that was sort of damned if you do damned if you don't I think everything he gets wrong as a ruler and as a parent does in fact have a flip side and if he would chosen other separate paths he perhaps still have ended up in trouble, maybe in a different way. His situation as a, the leader of Dawn was always a bind, and I don't see how he could have gotten away from Dawn's thirst for vengeance, even if he himself wanted to shun it. So, in Doran's defense, just to be on his side for a minute, we did mention we want to run him over hot coals and then take him off again. I would ask for just a crumb of understanding for some of the poor decision-making that we have perceived today. So guys, that's the end of the live stream. We're finished. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in on your Saturday. We really love to have a crowd watching. And Kyle, thanks so much for your participation and your insights. You were brilliant today. Why don't you tell us what you're up to, where to find you, and about your podcast, and so on.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Again, thank you so much, Radio Westeros, for having me. It's always a little surreal for me to come on and get to talk with you guys. Um, but tons of fun, as always. Your guys' insights are, are phenomenal. Um, as for me, A Song of Madness is coming up. We are talking about covering it again this year. Maybe a bit more low-key. We're going to have some fun with it this year, I think, with Davos Fingers. But, you know, people always enjoy that. So that'll be here before you know it. It's almost February. Um, but, yeah, for me, I'm hanging around Twitter at, at KWDent2. Um, my uh, charities that if, if you want to donate, me and my wife always are working with the Cancer Research Institute, whose, me- whose mission is to save more lives by fueling the discovery and development of powerful immunotherapies to cure all types of cancers. It's one that we are always happy to work with. You can visit my pinned tweet if you want to donate there. Um, other than that, I just want to say thank you for having me again here guys and hope everybody has a good rest of their weekend and a good rest of your lives.
2: Thank you, Kyle. Thanks for being here. Uh, that is a great cause. I encourage everyone to you know check, check out your pinned tweet and support that as far as us. Radio Westeros. What is up next is uh, in two weeks time, we are going to be back on the 13th of February at 5 p.m. Same time of day on this channel with Monaro Geek TV talking all about Dark Star and how staying in the winds of winter. So we are very excited for that. Come on back in two weeks, really, and uh, join us for another live stream. Thank you, everyone, for being here Thank you for uh, you know, supporting us and uh, hello to everyone in the future who's listening to the pre-recorded version of this. We appreciate you as well.
3: Yeah, thank you guys for all your support of the live stream so far. There will be more. There will be many more. And a special shout out to our chat room mods who make this all possible thanks to each and every one of our patrons who support us. And if you want to support us as a patron too, check out our Patreon campaign, which includes all manner of incentives, including invites to our new Discord community forum, which completely rocks. I can promise you that. And you also can obtain shoutouts and other perks and whatnot. So check out our Patreon campaign. Thank you very much and bye for now.
2: Bye everyone.
4: As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming.